I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our work. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate an individual to receive all the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 7th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What is the constitutional role of the Federal Reserve? Economist Judy Shelton argues it's pretty clear. Money, she says, is a critical measure so people can plan their lives. And stability in that measure is key. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. When you evaluate the performance of a Federal Reserve, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what are your uh, metrics for deciding whether or not they've done a good job? <laughs> well, um, I I feel that the most important role for the Federal Reserve is to try to live up to what you might call the only constitutionally um, assigned value. Um, I think Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the right to regulate the value of the money and a foreign coin. <laughs> and that is expressed in the same sentence that they also give Congress the right to define weights and measures. So fundamentally, money is meant to be a measure. It's supposed to be the ultimate tool for a free market-oriented society so that people can can plan, so they can figure out uh, how much to work, how much to save, how much they're willing to sacrifice today to invest in the future. And if that power is given to an agency of government with the with the right to exercise discretionary authority, they better be pretty doggone sure that they're going to, through their discretion, manage the money supply which affects the value of that monetary unit in a way that produces somehow better outcomes than if they just defined it as a unit of account, a permanent store of value that was never expanded or contracted, that was not just an economic lever used by government, better produce better outcomes than just letting uh, the market supply and demand for loanable capital determine the interest rate. All right. So that sounds like, to me, you're calling for a zero inflation target. I Personally, I think that's the ideal. Um, it's hard these days to define what that means because there are so many indices and the preferred one used by the Fed. Uh, may not be the same, isn't the same as, say, the, the consumer price index, I think you can make a good argument that because of technological improvements, um, in some ways, uh, the inflation could be zero or even slightly negative if you're looking at a consumer basket. And uh, those consumer goods owned by everyone deliver so much more than they did thanks to technology, thanks to productivity. 
um, at earlier prices. So um, as soon as you get into defining money in a way that depends on these assessments of of a, a basket of of goods that people commonly understand and relate to and would be sensitive to if the prices were to vastly increase or decrease. Um, you know, I, I'm, I don't like when some people are talking about not just 2%, which kind of builds in 2% obsolescence into the purchasing power of what's supposed to be the store of value, but it seems just a, kind of an intellectual indulgence. Um, it's why 2% is kind of based on money illusion and the idea that if if people's wages go up nominally 2%, they won't mind that the price of everything they buy also went up 2%. And, and we know wages are famously, according to Keynes, sticky downward. I think we're finding out that interest rates are sticky upward. And um, in short, I would like to keep life simpler and not have people have to index uh, the value of especially a house you own 10 or 20 years, we're talking about a 20 to 40% shift in its value, or you own stocks for a great, great deal of time and they're not indexed. Um, it just vastly complicates money. And again, going back to founding principles, when Thomas Jefferson uh, produced his notes on the establishment of a money unit for the United States, he really stressed the importance of it being reliable and simple. People are afraid of deflation, especially economists who work in uh, Washington, D.C. Deflation seems like a, a scary thing. Um, it seems like a scary thing if it means that we're, we're in a, a downward spiral. But I always, I, I always had a little bit of a, a resistance feeling to that notion that usually follows when someone says, oh, deflation would be much worse. Than inflation, because if if you're in a deflationary uh, syndrome, then people will wait for the prices to get lower before they buy. And I thought, wait a minute! I thought the way free markets worked is when prices get lower, then people they're prompted to buy. So I just don't understand why now lower prices don't stimulate people to buy. Um, I'm not. I, I I mean, the ideal is just. Um, that the level of prices reflects um, a stable purchasing power. And of course, prices on some things go up, prices on other things go down. But I think you just want stable purchasing power instead of being caught up in, in defining what particular um, price index you're using to gauge what the optimal level of inflation is. We have a tax system that is based on debt. We have inflation, which is an implicit tax, and, and even though it's it's fairly low right now, it's a tax on ass holding holding cash. Um, the deflation, uh, a mild deflation, as you mentioned, would be a reward to people who save uh, relatively. So, how do we get to a system where there is a consistent, if very mild? deflation in our money supply? Well, I think what we're finding, which is a little bit scary and humbling, I would think, for central bankers everywhere, is just because they decide what an inflation target should be, and they put all that effort into analyzing the perfect inflation target, 
it doesn't mean they can't achieve it. I mean, we're, we're really seeing that um, um, year after year, the central banks, certainly the, the European Central Bank and our own, um, very much uh, lay out their inflation target and then consistently uh, can't achieve it. So I guess what I'm saying is in their effort to achieve it, if they're for example, uh, attempting to to stimulate through quantitative easing or reducing the interest paid on excess reserves with the goal of trying to increase inflation, at some point, maybe they have to stand back and say, what has happened to the multiplier? Why is it that um, the our, our federal open market operations are generating excess reserves in the accounts of banks, but those excess reserves are not making their way into the economy and expanding opportunity for people to to uh, borrow and engage in productive economic projects that generate the growth. And because the big fear is that with the growth would come the inflation, with the higher employment would come the inflation. And, and so I, I think the unintended consequence of thinking you can target some optimal inflation rate uh, is that you, you could be really disincentivizing banks to make the loans that would generate the jobs and the growth and might ultimately enrich the consumer and the, increase uh, the wages to labor to the point that it should be reflected in the, a higher CPI. Um, the fact we haven't had the inflation to me is a signal of the dog that's not barking, and it means there's something wrong with the idea of stimulating through ex lower and lower rates, but not really doing enough in the pro-growth initiatives that I think have a lot more to do with increasing employment. To what extent does, uh, does that privilege the borrowing of governments? Well, it it occurs to me that um, even this latest effort by our Federal Reserve to, um, although they say it's strictly technical, and to make adjustments for the repo market, but sixty billion um, a month in in Federal Reserve purchases of Treasury debt. Uh, if you, if they, I know they're now talking about doing that through um, the second quarter of next year, but maybe it goes longer. Eighty billion a month to, uh, over twelve months would just about eat up the entire projected budget deficit for next year. That'd be nine hundred and sixty billion, and people worry about a trillion. And um, it, it's it's clear that there's um, it, the. Monetary policy is complicit, I think, in making it easy for governments to borrow cheaply. Uh, I would like to reduce the cost of, of debt as much as anyone, um, but I, I think what we saw from quantitative easing to, to a pretty big extent, it, the money went to help big borrowers, um, uh, big government, and I think wealthy investors who could borrow on margin and bid up financial markets. Um, getting our way out of that is, is going to be tough. You can't just pull the monetary rug out from under financial markets because they will, they will bite back. They now, I think, are very demanding of what they want from central banks. And, and I wouldn't want central banks in some ways to disappoint them because certainly in the United States, a significant 
proportion of the population have have pension assets or retirement accounts now. They've been pressed into equity markets, and and uh, would, that would be real wealth taken away from them. So I think you have to be very careful about how to move toward a, a monetary uh, outlook or have a vision for a monetary framework that can help to restore some of that integrity I started out talking about of having a dependable dollar, a, a consistent and meaningful unit of account uh, through time, and and a compelling issue for me is, and across borders. I don't think, for example, you can be virtuous in a vacuum and just say, we're going to ensure that we have the perfect monetary policy for the United States and somehow ignore what the other major central banks are doing because um, um, there are issues not just not just in terms of, I think, central banks have become the currency manipulators. How closely are you following what has happened in New Zealand recently? Well, how do you mean? I mean moving to a dual mandate from the single mandate. Well, you know, if if the single mandate is just price stability, and now on the Fed's own website, they they talk about um, employment, and of course, they always refer to their dual mandate as maximizing employment, but they refer to it as largely a non-monetary development. So, so I do not think that central banks can be end all be all on all these other um, delivering these these other uh, gifts <laughs> through stimulus if you really look at the the fed's mandate it's not dual it's it's a triple mandate the third part is that they're supposed to work to bring about moderate long-term interest rates well we saw when we had an inverted yield curve when you had higher short-term rates and long-term that there was nothing moderate about that so you referred earlier to savers, and um, they, they've clearly been punished by um, quantitative easing that has cut the returns to savers to such such low amounts that they've been forced to go into equities. I really think money has to work equally for all segments of the population and not penalize um, one group at the expense of another. Judy Shelton is author of Money Meltdown, Restoring Order to the Global Currency System. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.